listening to a climate change. This is Matt Mattern, and I've got Senator Ben Allen on the program. Uh, Senator, great to have you on the show. It's the uh, third time we've had you, and uh, it's always been a pleasure. So thank you for uh, for being here. I appreciate you so much, Matt. Happy to be here and happy to, to be on again. Well, uh, tell us a little bit about what's been happening uh, in your world uh, since we last talked. Uh, the last time we talked, you had just had a big win kind of earth shattering win on the plastics front. Uh, and maybe you can get everybody up to speed as to what that win was for those of us who, who may not have heard it. And then two, like, where is it at in terms of implementing that, um, that win on the ground? Yeah, so we, we were able to get SB 54 across the finish line. This is a, a bill that really has global implications in, in terms of forcing the producers of plastics and, and all sorts of other types of food serviceware and, and packaging to meet aggressive recycling and or composting requirements, source reduction requirements, waste reduction requirements. If they're not able to, they've got to transition to better and more sustainable alternatives. And it was something that we did as part of a grand negotiation between the environmental community, environmental justice, local governments who are ultimately paying the, the big price of all of the dysfunction of our waste management system and industry, retailers, uh, distributors, producers, et cetera. And it basically creates this extended producer responsibility system whereby the producers of, of the plastics take responsibility finally for the end use of their products. And so it, it was a, a big bill. We got it across the finish line. It literally got international news. It's starting to impact global investments as, as new innovative uh, companies that are coming up with new, more innovative solutions to packaging and plastics alternatives, plastic recycling are, 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 are emerging and getting investment and, and, and scaling opportunities uh, for their products. So it's, it's really exciting. And the implementation is starting. The Cal Recycle, which is the department that oversees this, this area of work, is coming out with regulations very, very soon, actually in January, February. Uh, the, there's, the industry groups are getting together to form a, what's called a producer responsibility organization that's going to help with the implementation of, of this effort. And, um, it, you know, we're really, really very pleased. And we've been hearing a lot of interest of, about our bill and, and all that it's going to help to spur uh, from, from all over the world. That's uh, that's really fantastic. And I guess it goes to show that yet again, California is in the vanguard. And uh, when we lead, others follow. And uh, it's it's certainly having it's tough to take on industry the way that you did, and you and you you had to compromise a bit with them in order to find something that was workable, but yet move the ball. Um, and so, I guess uh, what's the next move? Uh, we we got that done. Uh, we're always asking more, 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 Senator. Uh, what, what's next? Yeah, well, certainly we're we're going to continue. Well, first of all, the implementation and the successful rollout of the program is a, is a high, high priority for me in overseeing that process. I, I chair the committee that oversees this area of policymaking. So that's certainly going to be an area of continued engagement. And I'm always, I mean, literally today, uh, you know, having meetings about implementation and, and uh, whether it be with industry groups, you know, power cycle, environmental groups, local government, et cetera, et cetera. So that continues to be a priority. We're also looking at um, a household hazardous waste as another potential uh, candidate for an extended producer responsibility system. Uh, and then we're looking at several other areas as well. I mean, one of my colleagues is working on an EV, uh, sorry, a, a solar panel 
uh, extended producer responsibility system. Chris Ward's got a bill in that space. There's others looking at batteries, others looking at, uh, at, at other, other parts of, of the consumer economy. The idea being, you know, try to get, try to create more skin in the game for producers so that when they're producing their products, they're not just thinking about the cheapest, easiest way to get the product out to market, but they actually have some level of responsibility or accountability with the end use of the product as well. And ultimately, they're the folks who've got the most knowledge about their product, their product design. Uh, they got the most tools at their disposal with regards to design and product, but they also know their markets better. They know their consumers better. And they can you know, take some responsibility for producing products that are going to both subserve their market, serve their consumers, but also be much less likely to end up as a, as a, as a cost burden, as an environmental burden to the rest of us. So we're doing a lot of work in that space. Now, of course, there's lots of work going on with climate in general, climate disclosure. Uh, both in terms of climate risk and, and emissions, uh, trying to you know, effectuate a, a faster, more rapid transition to uh, to clean energy. So happy to talk about all that. But there's there's tons of work happening in the environmental space. Obviously, there's a big COP conference happening right now. I went to Climate Week back in September in New York. Um, so we can we can talk more broadly about all those efforts uh, if you'd like. Well, uh, I'm going to COP uh, on Saturday, so. Uh... You know what? Uh, what should I be looking for, and what should uh, I be trying to uh, look? You know, bring back to listeners. Well, I'm excited you're going. I, you know, it's funny. I, um, I I'm not going. Uh, you know, and I I'm glad you're going. I'm, and there are some legislators that are going to go. Now I'm happy to connect you with them. It'd be great for you to do some interviews. Um, I think everyone's obviously there's a lot of nervousness and skepticism about this particular cop, right? I think a lot of people are saying that. Um, you know, first of all, there was the there was the distressing reports of how you know some of the organizers are actually setting up side meetings with oil industry folks to talk about oil deals and other major you know fossil fuel deals, uh, which seems to really defeat the purpose of some of the broad goals that are happening. Uh, you know, with, with 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 you know all the fossil fuel reduction that we knew we need to we need to do to meet the climate goals that we have as a planet. So, um, I, I, you know. I, I think there's a lot of there's a certain degree of skepticism. I went to Climate Week, which I actually thought was a really great experience. You you know you, you have people coming from all over the world to New York to talk about uh, the need for action on climate. Um, I'm just I'm obviously I'm really I don't want to talk down the conference because I'm immensely hopeful that some progress will be made. But it's hard to feel at least from all the initial reports uh, very confident and optimistic about how the conference is going to go. What made you decide to go and how are you grappling with with all of the um, all of the, the 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 skepticism that's out there about the chances of this, this conference being successful, given where it is and who's running it and all the all the meetings that have already been set up? I guess I uh, I also have a degree of skepticism. I also think, though, sometimes uh, an opportunity like this could, you know, when you have the the quote bad guys in the room this is where you can get the deal done and of course we are i'm a litigator by trade and so i know at mediations we've got to have the person who uh, harmed my client uh in the room in order to get the deal done so i think there's a possibility of because we'll have the oil companies in the room essentially uh in a big way and uh the middle eastern opec uh, nations there and we, you know, and there's also a sense of hospitality. When you invite somebody into your domain, you better offer them something or you kind of look like a bad host. So 
Uh, I heard, I didn't hear this uh, firsthand because I didn't listen to the Sultan's uh, opening speech, but somebody told me that they they thought it was very good and that he seemed to be saying the right things. Now, of course, just saying the right things is not enough, but it is certainly a step in the right direction because certainly oil producing companies and countries were not saying the right thing, um, you know, years ago. Yeah. And I will say I've spent some time in the Gulf region and I know hospitality is a very important part of the culture there. Uh, it was certainly something that was very meaningful to the Qataris as they were hosting the World Cup. And, um, it, you know, so I, anyway, I, I, I um, listen, I'm, I'm, I think we all have a vested interest, all of us as human beings, as inhabitants of this planet, we all have a vested interest in the success of this conference. And I think you're right. I mean, listen, one lesson, certainly, you know, on the plastics deal, I, I sat down with industry a lot. I, I worked with industry a lot. And I, I recognize that the only solution to this problem would have to involve real conversation, meaningful conversation and engagement with industry. And I think there's no question that we can we, we, we simply can't meet our climate goals without bringing the energy companies and indeed the oil companies into, into the conversation. Um, but I, I, I will say we also have to be tough and, and, and hold them accountable and, and, and really put their feet to the fire. And so I'm just really hopeful that that, um, that, that process will, will happen. And um, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I think we're all really counting on it. Yeah, I think that maybe it's hitting home in a very real way, particularly in the Gulf, where it is literally uninhabitable for humans at certain temperature levels. And they are they are at the higher end of that spectrum. They make Phoenix look like, uh, you know, the North Pole. So um, the, it's got to be excruciatingly hot there and uh at some point in time it is literally unlivable if it keeps going in that direction so they they've got to be concerned about their own well-being at, at some point in time yeah i i think i i yeah i that's certainly that's certainly the hope you can't air condition your way out of this problem uh so uh, anyway, I wish you Godspeed. I wish all the delegates of the conference Godspeed. I will. I do. I, I will say. I hope that some of the work that California has been doing will also help to inspire the work there. I mean, everything from our, you know, having passed uh, legislation last year to dramatically, you know, continue this this trajectory of greenhouse gas emission reductions, uh, and also the climate disclosure bills, both in terms of climate risk and uh, emissions through supply chain. Uh, the, all that stuff matters, and, and all that stuff is getting buzzed. It certainly got a lot of buzz in New York when we went to, to to Climate Week. You know, one of the things about that experience when I went out there, you know, being in Sacramento, sometimes it feels a very provincial place. Being in L.A., nobody ever seems to care much for Sacramento. I, there I was in New York around the table with a lot of top-flight folks at Latham & Watkins, you know, people flown in from all over the world who were experts in cap-and-trade finance, and they were – listening very intently to a panel of state senators talking about the work we were doing because there really is global impact to our work in Sacramento in the area of climate. And it's something we ought to be proud of, but we something we ought to keep keep pushing on. Uh, it'll make a difference in, in international conferences like COP. Well, uh, somebody's got to do it first. And I think that California has taken a lot of those first steps and uh, we should be proud of what we've done, but not sit on our lawyer laurels uh, because there's yet more to be done. So stay tuned, everybody. We'll be back in just one minute with Senator Ben Allen, a mover and shaker uh, on the plastics front and many other environmental issues.
You're listening to a climate change. I've got Senator Ben Allen on the show. Uh, Senator, I uh, just wanted to talk to you about uh, one idea that has been batted around for decades really is a tax, a carbon tax, and that that would ele- elegantly kind of address the elephant in the room, which is, hey, if we put a tax on something, everybody will have to pay, or certainly some people, maybe richer people pay and, and poor people get subsidized a bit uh, because it would be unfair to kind of hammer people who are lower income. Um, so how, is that something that we could do in California and, and do effectively, or is that something that really needs to be done at a national level? I think we could do it in California. I mean, it's something I've actually been really interested in for a while. I ran a bill a few years ago to create a feasibility study for just this question. Should we try to figure out some way to equitably in- to implement some some form of, 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 of carbon tax? Uh, there's other ideas out there, fee and dividend, all those kinds of things where people would get money back. Um, you know, I will say cap and trade is, is a carbon tax of sorts, right? It's, it's a, it's a you know, the idea is that you make it more expensive for companies to pollute and to contribute to greenhouse gas, uh, the greenhouse gas effect. And, um, and and over time, you restrict their 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 right, their permits to do so, and that ends up, uh, you know, increasing the cost of of polluting activity. You know, the sad thing is, my bill got out of the Senate and and made and ended up stalling in the Assembly Taxation and Revenue you know, Revenue and Taxation Committee. Uh, a number of Democrats just didn't want to you know support it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I will say it was a few years ago. Things have changed a bit. So now that we're having this conversation, I'm thinking maybe I should try to, re, you know, re- revive the bill. Uh, it, it was it was a disappointing experience, quite frankly, because I think there are people out there uh, who are who are deeply skeptical. My idea was we, we could I mean, I, what I'd love to have happen is maybe replace the sales tax with a carbon tax. So um, so that you know people would. I, I don't think it would be I don't think it would be politically feasible for us to impose a carbon tax on top of all the taxation that currently exists. But if there's a way for us to get rid of an existing tax or dramatically reduce an existing tax and a regressive tax, such as the sales tax, for example, that might be a way for people to feel more comfortable accepting uh, something like this that I hope would help to better steer behavior. I mean, one of the problems with the sales tax is that it it actually you know, disincentivizes something that we want to incentivize, which is economic activity. We want people going out to the stores and buying things in brick and mortar places and and and, and creating jobs and generating life in our on our streets and in retail and all that kind of thing. That's all good stuff. And we should I mean it, one of my problems with the sales tax is that it 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 um it it sort of penalizes, you know, to to a small extent, but it penalizes that sort of economic activity that we want to incentivize. Whereas the beauty of a carbon tax is that it would be really focused on charging people more for you know, activity, for business activity, economic, industrial activity that is more harmful to our environment. And hopefully in, the, in, in, in so doing would incentivize or dis, disincentivize bad behavior, incentivize good behavior. So it's something that's always been of real interest to me. It's, it's been a struggle to get other elected officials, or at least enough elected officials, including on the Democratic side, to, to to get on board the idea. I think people are scared of change. I think there's a lot of industry pushback. There's also major questions about how it would be determined. It's so easy to, to apply a sales tax as it's a straight percentage on all transactions. And yet, uh, I think from a conceptual perspective, it would be much better to 
do away with the sales tax and replace it with with a with a similar uh, with a, with a carbon tax that would create a similar amount of revenue, but do a much better job of incentivizing or disincentivizing good and bad behavior that's pro-social or you know, pro-planet or anti-planet. Oh, I think it's a brilliant idea uh, to link the two because you can get the carbon tax initiated and take away the sales tax, which, as you said, is regressive. And then people who are doing, who are wanting to engage in more polluting behavior, pay for it. And people who are not engaging in that don't have to pay for it. So, right. you know, kind of, there's not a free rider uh, problem, which is that uh, people who are not polluting end up paying, um, you know, or we all pay the cost of a polluted environment. Um, you know, somebody was saying to me that uh, the Lancet said that the cause, the nine million deaths are caused each year by pollution. That's ninety million people dying over the course of ten years because of pollution. It's insane. Uh, we we wouldn't stand for that if that was like a war or something like that. We we right. up in arms, but. Uh, you know, silently, nine million people are going to die this year because of pollution. It's it's crazy. So, uh, absolutely, go back to that uh, that idea you had for the feasibility study and get that going because I think uh, you might win the Nobel Prize for that one. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm, in fact, I look like um, uh, uh, maybe Nicole. Maybe you can maybe you can put the the, the bill information in the chat so everyone can see it. Uh, sure. But I, yeah, I I, I really think. Um, I, I, now that we're having this conversation, I, I'd, I'd like to revive. Let's see if we can revive it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's a great idea, and uh, you know, it's it's one that really will shift. You know, the fulcrum of the whole the whole of economic activity, and and you kind of go back. Uh, a friend of mine was talking to me about John Locke recently, and and the uh, idea of stewardship, and the idea of stewardship that Locke had talked about really fell by the wayside. And he was he was one of the great thinkers that the founders of the country really uh, put a whole lot of stock into. And that's the basis of a lot of our democracy. But unfortunately, at the time, stewardship looked a lot different 300 years ago than it did today. And in part, we dropped the ball in not pricing pollution. So we let people engage in activities without pricing this cost to all of us. And so yeah. if we price the cost, maybe we'll change the activity. Totally. I think that, uh, you know, you bringing up John Locke is actually really apropos because uh, there has been a line of thinking in American economic and political philosophical thought that's, that, that says, oh, the, the John Locke Rousseauian you know, you know, ethos that, that we, that we, that, that, be, that plays such an important role, as you correctly state, in 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 the in the foundation foundational principles of our of our country, I think has been uh, misread in many respects, or at least selectively read. That a lot of people see that that philosophical trajectory as supporting a a laissez-faire economic system. That uh, you know, and yet people like John Locke collect, correctly recognize that in areas such as the environment, and this was a guy writing in the 1700s. I mean, the 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 prescience of this man is extraordinary, but I think he saw it coming, right? That the industrial revolution was taking off. He saw it happening in, in Britain. He saw the benefits of it, but he also saw the enormous negatives with, with increased pollution and you know uh, people getting black lung. I mean, all these all environmental problems and recognized that in the end of the day, an unfettered market 
uh, you know, is not going to look out for the environment, is not going to look for out for our precious resources, that we need to take a proactive step in 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 putting stewardship as a as a high core principle, putting environmental stewardship as a as a as a as a core fundamental principle for 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 our society, for our government, for our country. And um unfortunately, you know, we've done it to some extent, but you know, it's it's always it's it's always so hard to get to get those people who benefit the most from a lack of regulation in this area to do the right thing and accept some responsibility and 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 you know and ultimately accept rules that are going to help to make sure our, our earth has a fighting chance to to keep going off into the future. And, you know, I, gosh, I was I was talking with someone yesterday, you know, it was a really nice person, does a lot of work overseas. And I, I was asking him, you know, why, you know, he does a lot of work in, in Southeast Asia. And I said, well, why do you do all this extra work in Southeast Asia manufacturing site? He said, well, quite frankly, some of it's just the fact that they just don't have a lot of environmental regulations. And so it's easier to do the work we do. And I you know, I, first of all, I was happy that you know you didn't feel that way about about the United States, but it, it's a it's a sad truth that we now have this you know race to the bottom where uh, where where a lot of countries feel as though they have to be you know they basically have to accept whatever status quo, whatever terms big industrial players want to impose upon them, uh, so as to get the factories and get the job creation and get the economic growth. And yet what ends up happening is their rivers get polluted and destroyed. Many more people, especially poor people who live, you know, in those areas end up getting impacted, you know, early deaths, cancers, uh, all sorts of other impacts. So it's a it's a sad kind of aspect of, of our capitalist system. And I think people like John Locke, uh, who was a proto-capitalist of, of, of many ways, uh, also recognize the limits of capitalism and the importance of imposing and incorporating stewardship values into the regulation and oversight of a capitalist system. Yeah, obviously we have to have it. I mean, I point out to uh, other people that uh, you you certainly wouldn't let the capital markets of the stock market be completely unregulated. People totally. would steal left and right. I mean, they're already doing it, even with lots of regulation. So you could you imagine the amount of, uh, you know, impropriety that would occur if, if uh, you know, nefarious actors were allowed to just run riot. I mean, it, it would be crazy. And the thing is that, that you know, like um, industry players get the need for that kind of regulation because it so directly impacts them. When it comes to environmental stewardship, there's a broad based impact uh, on, on everybody else for all of the, the, the externalities, all the negative impacts of pollution. And, and and they, I think some of the industry players see it as a, as, as them bearing a, a disproportionate cost uh, for for broad based benefit, and it's one of the reasons why it's so much harder to sometimes get industry to agree to this kind of stewardship principle. That being said, you know, there's their cultural shifts, and people are you know, starting to see the need for this kind of work, and, and we need to keep the pressure up. I think you know it's, it's in places like California where they recognize that you know that our polity is just not going to put up with uh, with 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 this rampant environmental degradation and they know they have to work with elected officials and advocates and others who are demanding more accountability out of out of our out of our businesses and well, so that created a better environment for conversation and negotiation i think there's a direct parallel to that and and when you're talking about the stock market versus just our clean air and that they're Clearly, a capitalist can see that their portfolio is protected by these regulations and adds value. And their billions and trillions of dollars of value is protected by these regulations. And if 
You could only get the enlightened capitalists to see we're protecting, you know, more than trillions of dollars. We're protecting our life, our life by environmental regulations. I mean, it's obviously valuable. We just need to price in the value of what that. Right. And the truth is, none of these regulations put anybody out of business. It just tells them to do their business in a better way. I'll give you one example. When there was, uh, you know, all those when when basically kids were growing up with half of the lung capacity in L.A. back in the 70s because there was such bad pollution in the air. We couldn't even see the Hollywood sign most days because of the smog. California regulators said to the industry, look, guys, you got to do better. We know you can do better. We know you have the technology. They weren't implementing the technology just because it was a little bit more expensive. We put the rules in place. They all implemented the technology. Now we have far more cars on the road, but people are breathing. But the air is significantly cleaner. It's not it didn't put the car automobile industry out of business over time. You know, they were able to scale the technology and it all just priced out in a, in a decent way. And yet a lot lot fewer lives are being lost right now to to to, you know, to, to lung respiratory diseases in L.A. as a result of our cleaner air. OK, well, you're listening to a climate change. We've got Senator Ben Allen on the program and we'll be right back after these messages. Stay tuned. to a climate change. Uh, this is Matt Matter, and I've got Senator Ben Allen on the program. Uh, I wanted to pivot to energy transition and how we're doing in California. What's the next big step? I know um, we've, we've got, you know, we've made a lot of progress, but are we on track to meet our goals? And are we going to uh, get even more aggressive in the coming years to uh, make that transition to clean energy vehicles um, more quickly. Yeah. Uh, well, so so yes, we're making a lot of progress. No, we have not uh, met our more ambitious goals. Uh, you know, I will say a few things. I mean, first of all, there was this big report that just came out that certainly shows that we've got a real, real crisis on our hands globally with regards to uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions and, and, and reaching a, a point of, of no return, which is very scary. Uh, one little shining light in, in the report was that the, the U.S. has basically leveled off on its emissions. We know we need to dramatically reduce our emissions, but there's been a leveling off that so we don't we're not continuing to to, to our emissions are not increasing uh, in, in the way that they were before. And partly that's the transition from coal. Uh, but you know, partly it's the leadership of places like California that have just been relentlessly pushing to transition our energy sources uh, away from from climate impacting fossil fuels. So what does this transition look like? Right. I mean, it's everything from, you know, trying to make sure that um, that 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 we that, that we, do, we do a much better job in 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 this in this transition to electric vehicles, uh, electricity in general. Of course, that's going to involve a lot of infrastructure. It's going to involve a lot of, of, of energy generation. One of the major challenges with battery storage. We know we have all of this excess solar power. We have a lot of sun in California, of course, during certain times of the day, certain times of the year, lots and lots of production at certain times. And then, of course, the sun goes down and there's no more solar production. Can you how long can you keep uh, that solar energy that has just been generated that day in a way that's going to be meaningful to charge people's homes and cars and AC units and all that around uh, the state? So there's a battery storage challenge. There's an infrastructure build out challenge. 
Uh, and yet there's a lot of really good people working on this stuff. Uh, you know, I mean, so much so that even some of the most vexing climate problems with regards to energy, you know, things like airplanes, for example. And we all know that every time we get on an airplane, typically you are just upping your carbon footprint through the roof. I feel really bad about it because I got to go personally. I fly a lot to Sacramento and elsewhere. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and so and yet and yet we've already had a couple you know, United is now you know, flying planes between San Francisco and L.A. with biofuels with a far lower uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, impact. There are innovators working in downtown L.A. right now at the L.A. Clean Tech Incubator on electric airplanes. And already they're able to fly, you know, short haul private electric planes. Uh, you know, and that technology is only going to get better and better. It's un very unlikely that we'll be flying electric planes to London anytime soon, but certainly to San Francisco or Sacramento, that is very much in, in the works as a possibility. And and by the way, to London, uh, hopefully those will be uh, airplanes that will be fueled by hydrogen. And, and you know, if we're able to really get much more careful about the leakage issues and other issues that they have with regards to hydrogen. So there are there are technology opportunities that are out there. It's just like with the plastics we were talking about before. It's all about putting in place the environment that will help to allow these innovators and new technologies to grow uh, and, and allow us to make this transition more, more, more robustly, more forcefully, more effectively. Well, I'd ask you, uh, I read an article recently that uh, they were saying that if we had 100 square miles of solar panels, that would be enough to power the U.S. Um, where are we at in terms of the solar rollout in in California. I know there's been a lot of hiccups in trying to get things through. CEQA sometimes is sometimes uh, a thing that slows a lot of projects down. Uh, and then, of course, bottlenecks of getting things from China and so on and so forth. Uh, are we on on track to to build out enough solar to meet our needs? Um, I, I wouldn't. I, I'd say we're making a lot of progress. I wouldn't say we're on track to fully meet our needs, uh, but we are making a lot of progress. I mean, there's industrial scale solar that's 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 being built in various parts of the state. I will say when this came up at an event I was at last night, um, there, we do have a problem on our hands in terms of a, a, a kind of a, a concerted effort to, um, you know, to, uh, against against the rooftop solar folks. Uh, there, there are people in the utilities and some of their partners who have been working hard to try to undermine the incentives for rooftop solar uh, under the guise that they're forcing everybody else to subsidize the transition to rooftop solar. I mean, my answer to that is, well, then let's tweak the formula a little bit more, but we shouldn't be doing anything that would harm the rollout of rooftop solar that creates more resiliency and gets more people into the game. Uh, and also you know, does so in a way that doesn't impact desert uh, environments as as much as the as the industrial scale solar typically does with things like the big project out in Ivanpah. So uh, you know, and of course we also know we have to build a massive transition transmission network, which has its own environmental challenges associated. So um, we are we're, we're we are we are making surprisingly good progress, but there as you correctly mentioned, a lot of 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 logistical and physical and regulatory. Uh, hurdles and barriers, and also some philosophical ones that we have to work our way through. Uh, you know, I mean, people in the labor movement, for example, you know, don't love the fact that the rooftop solar world is largely non-unionized and the traditional utilities are. And so they tended to kind of double down on the utilities approach to this stuff. Uh, so how do we figure out a way to square some of those 
uh, round peg. So um, let me let me ask you on that front because I I'm really uh, think that this is an important issue. Is I, I really feel like we should be incentivizing commercial buildings in particular to go rooftop solar because they have the uh, enormous capacity. I was down at an event down at Alta C with uh, Terry Timmerman yeah. and Arnold Schwarzenegger, and they opened it up and they had 800, they could power 800 homes based upon that one array on an old warehouse in uh, in around the port of LA. I mean, and uh, Schwarzenegger had said, if we had rooftop solar on all of our commercial buildings, it'd be enough to power the entire state. What can we, what can we do to incentivize that? Yeah, I, I, I would like, I, I am in the camp that um, is skeptical of the current trajectory at the Public Utilities Commission that I think has been buying the utilities line uh, you know, too um, unquestioningly. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity with rooftop solar. And, and, I, and I understand there were some inequities associated with the, the, the former you know, the, 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 the previous form of rooftop solar uh, that we had. But I don't think, I, I think we've got to be really careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think there's a lot of value to, 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 to aggressively incentivizing more rooftop solar. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm count me in the group that's out there kind of advocating at the PUC and also within the legislature for this, for, for the solar industry. I mean, I understand, you know, there, there continue to be concerns out there about, about the quality of the jobs and 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 some other issues, and I I think those are issues that we can resolve. Let me just right? ask you, in terms of the PUC, what uh, both explain it for the audience as to why this is important, and and because uh, this is kind of one of these organizations that's kind of under the radar a bit, and uh, what what average citizens can do to to lobby uh, their governmental officials to change the policies of the PUC. Yeah, I mean, there are groups that, that if you are a, if you are a rooftop solar person yourself, you know about these groups because there's a, there's an alliance that, that's out there advocating pretty aggressively uh, for rooftop solar and for the rooftop solar community. Uh, so, you know, but basically, the, the PUC is a is a is a commission that's been largely made up of it's basically made up of gubernatorial appointments appointees who are supposed to oversee and regulate the utilities system and do so in a way that's equitable. Uh, one of the tension points that's come up is who should, you know, how much should we be incentivizing rooftop solar when it's largely been something that wealthier people and wealthier parts of town have taken advantage of? Not entirely, by the way. Lots of people from lots of different backgrounds use rooftop solar. But one of the arguments that the utilities, I think, have very effectively used in this argument is that we're basically asking, you know, folks who don't have the opportunity to put rooftop solar on their own roofs to subsidize uh, those who do. And, you know, I, I get that. I also get the fact that we need more solar power generation in, in general. And, and um, you know, I, I, I really hope that the commission can find a better way of striking a balance. I, I, I worry that they haven't they really haven't struck that balance properly uh, up until now. Well, we certainly uh, hope that the governor and his folks up on the Public Utilities Commission do not overly favor the utilities because they've kind of gotten us into this situation in the first place. So uh, and I feel like it will also help on the transmission side because we won't need as many um, big power lines running through our neighborhoods if we have more uh, 
you know, kind of microgrids. But exactly. uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back with Senator Ben Allen. You're listening to a climate change and we'll be back in one minute. Listen to a climate change, and I've got Senator Ben Allen on the program. Uh, Senator, why don't we pivot to water? Since we're here in California, we always have to talk about water. Uh, we had a great, you know, year last year. Got a ton of rain, uh, but uh, I guess we can't kind of forget the fact that this may not happen every year. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, I mean, when it won't happen every year, we know that. In fact, we know there's going to be a lot of swings. Uh, as as climate change uh, you know, impacts our our environment, so uh, it was a great year from a water perspective. Uh, we we certainly were able to replenish so much of our groundwater system in our in our snowpack and uh, and that was and a lot of our reservoirs. That was wonderful. Uh, but we also know we need to plan for the future through better water management systems in general, uh, through an overhaul, you know, through 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 a, a you know serious conversation about about water rights and water allocations and the responsibilities of the water board. And then, you know, quite frankly, uh, you know, I, I also think we, you know, we, 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 need to, we need to think about um, everything from water flow to water storage. Uh, there's a lot of work that has, and recycled water too. Uh, there's a lot of work that has to happen uh, in this space. And, and so uh, I, it's gonna take some difficult, some difficult and important work. Well, I don't know if uh, the state has anything to do with regulating the water rights of so those farms down um, in the the Mexicali area that um, that um, on the border there, uh, which get more water than the entire state of Nevada and Arizona combined, <laughs> which is kind of crazy because they're growing crops that they're exporting like alfalfa, which we don't even need here in California. Um, can we distribute the water a little bit more fairly? Because it seems crazy that we're paying to water the desert, essentially. Yeah, this is a really tricky topic, right? I mean, I think you've got people that are sitting on water rights that 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 uh, date back to you know to, to earlier times. Uh, our whole water rights system is largely you know, kind of comes out of the English common law riparian rights system, which you know makes a ton of sense. From a British context, when you've got nothing but rain, right? I mean, the British are famous for their rain, and so uh, you know, the, the rather generous concepts that undergird water and riparian rights in the English common law just don't apply very, uh, uh, you know, nicely or, or effectively to a, a fundamentally different climate that we have here in California. In fact, Australia, which of course is also an English common law country, had to totally break with. Uh, English common law on this topic because they have a similar climate to ours. And they've now created this system in Southeast Australia where most of the people live, where there's a certain, you know, they, they know exactly what all the water levels are at all times. You can get an app right now and find out exactly where every reservoir water level, every river water level, every every stream uh, in Southeast Australia. And there's a certain amount of water that's allocated per person, you know, for personal use. And then everything else is a market. It's an open market. So in those years where there's where there's more water available, water prices come down. In those years where there's less water available, water prices come go up. And it, and it, and it you know, it, it also incentivizes preservation and conservation. 
Uh, that's something that they were able to do in Australia. Very difficult thing to do here in California, given all the powers that be. And you know, you just mentioned one example. Uh, and yet, so we got a bill through. It was surprisingly difficult. Uh, just you know, just this last year, SB three eighty nine, which which looks at this whole question of giving the water board the right to to to, to chase down potentially fraudulent or false water rights that date from before 1914, until we got our bill across the finish line, the water board didn't even have that power, which is extraordinary given what an important task we give our water board in, in ensuring an equitable and sustainable distribution network of water for the state. And by the way, there are far more water rights out there than there is water in the state of California. So we've got a problem on our hands. We know the problem's only gonna get worse as climate change gets worse. We do need to do better at, at, uh, at dealing with the big swings in the amount of water that come in and out of our system on a yearly basis with climate change as a reality. But I think we also need to, to start taking some more substantial steps to, 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 to square the realities, the hydrological realities with the law. And right now, they're just, you know, the law, I think, is it kind of has its head in its sand, head in the sand with regards to uh, to rights when when it, when compared to 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 how much water is actually out there and available. And a couple of my colleagues, Buffy Wicks and Rebecca Barakahan, have have bills that will give the water board more powers to 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 act decisively during times of water emergency and and and, and under under exigent circumstances. And yet they've unfortunately run into uh, some brick walls because the powers that be don't want to see change in this area. And yet, you know, I would argue that we need change in this area. In fact, the powers that be have a vested interest in seeing change in this area just because, you know, the system that we're sitting on right now is simply unsustainable and untenable. Yeah, it, it seemed as though uh, during the midst of our rainy season, there was a lot of excess water coming down certain rivers and they were having a hard time uh, taking that water and putting it into groundwater recharge in various areas because you'd have to jump through all these hoops to get to the point where you could do it. And then by the time they jump through all the hoops, the water's gone. So it's it's kind of crazy that we can't even use effectively the water that we uh, we have when it's raining. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, and yet one of the problems is that, you know, you've got so many, everyone, has such a, a, there's so much nervousness about any changes in the status quo. I found this when I started to dip my toe in the proverbial water, no pen intended, uh, on this topic, because you start to realize that when you when you try to ask fundamental these kinds of fundamental questions, you don't just have agricultural interests that raise concerns. You have nearly every city up and down the state uh, that raises concerns because they're so nervous about any change that might be made to the water rights system because they rely on their water districts to provide them with reliable sources of water. And when their water districts get nervous, they get nervous. And so it just creates a lot of political challenges. But look, these this this Wix, we got our bill through, the Wix and the, and the Barakahan bill were, 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 were important, meaty, aggressive bills. They both got out of the state assembly. I'm hopeful that we'll be able to shake them loose in the, um, in, in the state Senate uh, in this coming year. And, um, you know, I, I, we'll, we'll see how they go, but, uh, uh, you know, it's 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 hard to make changes. It's hard to make changes to the status quo, and um, uh, you know, we we need we need public knowledge and advocacy on this topic. Yeah, well, I appreciate you putting it out on the forefront and giving our listeners a chance to engage on this and get behind these important bills. Tell us a little bit about who your heroes are. Who would you put on your Mount Rushmore of environmental heroes, uh, and and why? 
Oh, that's a great question. Gosh. Um, well, uh, I love, man, uh, that's a really good question. I, I, I obviously, uh, I, I, I love some of those folks, you know, back in the day who, who spoke so lovingly about nature and wrote so lovingly about nature, you know, whether it be, you know, some of the great poets, Wordsworth, Keats, uh, some of the great writers like John Muir. I mean, obviously he's, you know, had, had some, com he's, he's been a controversial figure, of, uh, but I, but I, I do, John Muir, you know, did, was such an important figure in understanding the importance of conservation and building political relationships that allowed for the, you know, for, for, for beautiful place, special places like Yosemite National Park and so many others to get preserved and set aside. Uh, I would point out a guy like Anthony Bielensen, uh, who was the congressman from the area just kind of northwest of me, who played a big role in working with advocates and activists in, in, in the creation of the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area, which is this beautiful national park system uh, uh you know area that 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 is now you know preserving you know, you know acres and acres of open space for for generations of angelinos from all different backgrounds to enjoy and explore uh my dad is a hero of mine environmentally he's someone who really did instill in me a really strong sense of environmental protection and stewardship he would take me hiking in those santa monica mountains every weekend as a kid uh i think there's a so he he i hear his voice all the time is that you know, we just I lost him this year, unfortunately, and I, I think about him so much as I do this work. Um, there's of course some wonderful new voices that are that are springing up, environmental justice voices. Uh, you know, I mean the, the the folks I worked with at Asul, um, who, who you know the the the, the late Cindy Montañez, who we unfortunately lost uh, just this year, who was a great environmental champion, uh, it's especially for underserved communities, but for all Angelinos, just this last year. I mean, young people like Greta Thunberg, who's out who are out there. You know, just speaking truth to power unabashedly on the climate crisis. Uh, so there's there's a lot of wonderful, uh, wonderful, wonderful um, environmental leaders that I draw inspiration from, and I'm, I'm, you know, I hope to, I hope in my own small way to to, to inspire some other uh, environmental activists myself as as time goes on. Well, uh, you certainly do, Senator, and uh, it's been a pleasure as always having you on the show, uh, Senator Ben Allen. Uh, everybody should uh, follow him on Instagram and all of the other social channels. Look what uh, what he's doing. Support the causes that he's talking about. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening in. Check out our social channels. Check out all of our podcasts you can hear online, uh, climatechange.com, as well as check us out on Spotify and Apple and iHeart. Tune in next week. Until then, everybody be the change that you want to see in the world. Thank you. Thanks so much.